busy season, so I'm very thankful to be able to get up here and teach to you guys and have the opportunity um, to dive deeper into the book of Judges. And yes, we've been going through this book. We're going to be going through it all summer long. Our series called Don't Judge Me. And today, I kind of have this in my notes. Today, today we're actually going to get into the book of Judges. All right, nothing against the last two messages, but we haven't really got to hear the stories, the bizarre things that take place throughout all of these people that God uses. And so today, we've been really setting ourselves up the last two weeks on what we can learn and how God takes these crazy characters and these crazy stories and what does that supposed to mean for us? How do we apply that into our own life? And I kind of liken it to like a children's story. Some of us maybe are used to or familiar with some of the classic children's stories, right? Rapunzel, Little Red Riding Hood, and we read them all the time. But I don't know if you've ever done some research and figured out like where the origins of those stories come from. They're not normal, all right? Like, they're very odd and weird. They have some bizarre twists and turns, and you're like, oh, we, we turned this into a children's story? That doesn't make sense. Uh, that's the book of Judges, essentially, is it's these stories. They're in Scripture, though, so that, so that means to us there must be some value and some truth behind what these things have to say regarding our own relationship with God. And so I'm excited to dive deep into these stories. And, and today, we're, we're at a place now in Judges chapter three where we get to actually witness. Uh, we're not talking about just one. We're gonna talk about two different judges. So the first two judges that God calls to the stage, we're gonna see, are very, very different, but have the same outcome. And so I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to comparing these two with you all. And so before we do that, if you have your Bible, let's, let's open up. Let's get ready to read through um, some bizarre and weird stories today when it comes to the book of Judges. So Judges chapter three, verse seven, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to that section now. We're gonna actually read through all of the rest of chapter three this morning. And so what we're gonna do is kind of go verse by verse, pick out a couple little things, notate some things that are important. At the end, we're gonna look at these two stories and, and kind of see how they compare with one another. Judges chapter three, verse seven. You ready? Here we go. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroths. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, Naram, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. Okay, so if you've been here at all the last few weeks, you have heard this terminology that we're gonna see over and over again. We're gonna go through this twice in this one chapter here called the sin cycle. Does that sound familiar? Hopefully some of you, I've got a graphic behind. If, if you forgot, I'll just refresh us really quick this morning. This is what the book of Judges is all about. And we just went into this new cycle with the Israelites where they fall into sin and idolatry. Uh, they are enslaved and oppressed. They repent before God. So we're about to read that in just a moment. And now we're gonna see God raising up a judge who then will be delivered, who will deliver God's people and Israel will have and serve the Lord with peace and rest. And that's gonna happen, like, like by the end of summertime, you're probably gonna get tired of hearing this over and over, and the people of Israel, again, felt you're gonna say, we get it, we get it. But this is the cycle, okay? And this is where Israel's at. And so this, their sin at this moment, we've maybe talked about this a little bit already, their sin, and I bring this up because we'll talk about it in a little bit, 
Their sin is essentially rejecting God and worshiping other idols. Okay, and I don't need to explain to us that we don't just worship wooden idols here. We have other things that take our attention and take our worship. But verse 8 explains that God grows angry with his people and he sends them into, into, into essentially slavery over the king of Mesopotamia, okay? And I'm reading this and I'm thinking to myself, you know, so we, we have a two and a half year old, me and my wife, we're expecting another at the end of the year, middle of September, late September. And we have learned with our two and a half year old, it doesn't matter how many times we tell him, don't do this, it doesn't even matter if we entice him with sugar and treats and all the really good parenting advice you're supposed to have, right? He will continue to do those things over and over again. I'm sure all of us have experienced this, maybe not with kids or with friends or family, hopefully not, but where we get to this point where we're like, hey, I've asked you not to do this over and over. And I'm reading this thinking, man, it would be kind of nice. Like, why don't you just go stay with these people for eight years, okay? Like, uh, I'm kind of getting tired of this at this point, so, you know, let's just go take an eight-year break. Okay, maybe not eight years, but why don't you go stay with your grandparents for a couple nights, right? We never do that, ever. Uh, Our kids are misbehaving, so we'll send them over this way. But there's an irony here with this idea of God saying, hey, it's been eight years and you're not listening to me. It's time to, like, it's time to wake you up a little bit. And we actually can relate to that in a lot of ways. But the irony here is that it's not, we're not God in the situation. We're, we're the Israelites. We're the people struggling and who aren't listening. And so it's been eight years. They've been, they've been under this reign. And for the first time now in the book of Judges, God says, okay, this time I'm going to send a person into your life to help get you out of this cycle. And so let's continue. Uh, Judges chapter three, verse nine. We'll read a few more verses ahead here. Uh, Let's see, verse nine says, but when they cried out to the Lord, this is the Israelites, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who served them. And the spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. Uh, the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him so that the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Okay, so a couple things. That's our first judge, just like that. In about three verses, we get his whole story. So how do we talk about that for 35 minutes? Well, we're about to find out. However, we want to look at what's mentioned here and what's also not mentioned here Obviously, I should say. Because when I read this, I'm reminded and I'm shown that, man, Israel was under oppression for eight years and then they cried out to God. So what does that tell us? It it took them eight years living in sin and and worshiping other gods and, and turning their back on God to finally realize maybe we need some help here. Not even maybe we need help, but maybe, maybe we've made a mistake. Maybe we've stopped worshiping God, and it, it takes them eight years before they realize, hey, God, we need a judge. We need someone to step in and bring us back to you. And that's a really important detail we can skip over when we read through Judges. And we'll see this a lot throughout the book. That's important for us because sin has so much power the longer it, we, we let it just stay in our life. 
And, and sometimes we recognize it, sometimes we know it obviously, and we do a good job of acting like it's not there, and so we just kind of shove it under the rug and pretend that God will eventually send somebody out to deal with that. But other times, we, we already know what it is. We, we may know, we may not know. Regardless, the, the, the point here is that we need to recognize we need a savior, right? And we need a judge. And Israel, at this point, we, we can see clearly, they, they know who God is. They, they have the, the mentality of understanding who God is. They've got a pretty good track history with God at this point, right? They've been in slavery. He's taken them out. They've, they've, they've seen him work. And so they have the understanding of who God is, but it's their heart, it's the inward change that they're struggling with right now. And that sometimes is the hardest change for us to make, a change on the inside. And so it takes Israel eight years, and, and here's why this is important. This is maybe not necessarily deep into the main purpose of, of this story, but it's something that I think we should recognize is that sin over time will lead to further separation from God, whether we know it or not. And, uh, you know, we don't blame them, but thank you, Israel, I guess, for giving us a great example of the danger of what this looks like. And so they've been oppressed for eight years. They call out to God, and God gives them this judge, the first judge in the book of Judges, and we see his name is Othniel. And there's only three, really three verses. We actually learn a little bit about him in Judges chapter one, but I want to just kind of break down his character and what we know about him and what maybe what's said and what's not said. And so we see this, one, we see that he was, he was chosen by God, and that's important. We'll talk about that again with our next judge, but we see clearly that Othniel is not someone who just came up out of the blue and said, hey, seems like we're uh, making some mistakes, let me fix stuff for you. Like this, God ordained this. God put him in this place. He was chosen by God. We get some background on who he is. He's the son of Kenaz. He's Caleb's younger brother. So he's a part of this, this Calebite tribe. Like he's, he's been a part of God's people. We, we have a great understanding of now where he comes from. We see the spirit of the Lord was upon him. So again, this is not just somebody who shows up. This is somebody that God said, hey, I'm gonna put you in charge and now I'm gonna put my spirit on you. And we could get into some details with this, but it's very unique that God would put his spirit on just, just one person. So it's clear he's, he's trying to show Israel, hey, through this one man, I want you to see where you've been wrong and that you can find victory through him. And lastly, this is, this is an important piece of who he is. We see that Othniel leads the Israelites and, and is victoria, victorious over the king of Mesopotamia with, with no need to, to bring people together. It just naturally happens. Like, there's no details in here of him gathering an army. He, he's already got their back. He takes Israel and they defeat the king and that's that. So Othniel's story is interesting because, yeah, like I said, we've been warning you guys, hey, the book of Judges is going to have some crazy stories, right? The judges are going to just be these bizarre, weird characters. Then we read Othniel and we think, okay, let's just, let's just close Judges and call it good, right? Like that's, that's, let's end there. Let's end while we're on top. But God, I believe, picks Othniel to be this first judge of Israel because the ones that are going to come after him are going to be less, um, less perfect, if you will. Because what's interesting, I don't see anything in Othniel's story here that talks about any flaw, any problem, any issue, any sin, anything that he does that goes against God's will. And so in a sense, Othniel is kind of 
making it difficult for the next judges to come because he essentially is this perfect example of a perfect judge. And that's important for us to recognize too. Because a lot of times, we seem to look and compare our life with other people. We look and compare how we do things with other people around us, and we see this person over here, they're really skilled at this, they're really gifted at that. I'd say they're a great setup to go talk to somebody about Jesus, or they're in a good position because of their job, so I'm gonna let them take that opportunity. But God shows us in this book here that sometimes if we don't have a good opportunity, it becomes a great opportunity for him. And so God sets the stage with this judge, and there's a reason for it, and we're going to talk more about it uh, in, in a little bit. But God sets the stage with this judge and this man named Othniel, and he basically, he comes in, he's victorious, and Israel has peace. And that's all we know. That's all we see. So we can assume that he was led by God, he did what God asked him to do, and he did it with no blemish or no flaws. So then we have our next judge who comes into play, all right? And things are gonna be much different. You're gonna notice, uh, and as I read his story, I want you to notice some similarities at the beginning and at the end, but you won't have to notice. It'll be really obvious the differences in the middle of his story, okay? So Judges chapter three, verse 12. So after this 40 years of peace, we see again, verse 12, again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Malachites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Are you picking up on some trends here? Their time frame is growing. Right, so now it's not eight years, it's 18 years. So, okay, we're gonna really, we're gonna take 10 more years to think about what we did wrong here, apparently. God now isn't just giving Israel over to this king. Now he's saying, I'm gonna not just give you over, I'm gonna strengthen him. He's gonna go out and find multiple armies. So, so in, in a sense, God's kind of saying, okay, we tried it this way, I'm gonna double down this time. Right, you had one army, we've got two armies this time. Okay, let's see if you really get the point. And God's using these little details to kind of help us recognize and hopefully help Israel recognize that, hey, you're missing something here. There's something that you're not doing. And, and what's, what's really interesting is God has this, this way of showing that he's in full control. He's in control by letting the Israelites be taken over. And he's also in control in a really, in a strange way, but he's now strengthening their enemies so that Israel will hear and recognize what they're doing wrong. And that's a scary place to be in sometimes when you realize, okay, God, you're not just, you're not just making yourself known to me. You're putting other people in, in my life and really making it known to me where I'm wrong. And so God's building up this, 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 next, this next season for God's people and the Israelites. And, and we see all sorts of details in this passage that they take over the city of Palms, which back then we would actually know that is Jericho. And this would have been a place the Israelites themselves had taken over not too long ago. So God is giving and he's taking away and he's doing all of this just to try and get Israel to fix their eyes on him. God is desperate to grab our attention and it's clear he'll do whatever it takes. So who does he bring into place this time? Judges chapter three, verse 15. Here we go. Again, the Israelites 
cried out to the Lord. I, I love to, sorry, I love, I love that Samuel, the, kind of the author who wrote this, he's done with the details. He's not saying again, the Israelites worshiped the, these, he's like, you know, you know it at this point, all right? Like, I'm gonna save the ink, I'm gonna save the paper. I don't even need to go into the details. Just again, the Israelites, they cried out to the Lord. Verse 15, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Okay, so now we have another judge, and we actually have some description about who he is compared to Othniel. So let, let's, let's compare the two. Let's see what we can see about Ehud. We see that he was chosen by God, which, again, so was Othniel. Okay, so two different people, two different characters, two very different stories, but both are chosen by God. That's important to note. We see he's the son of Gerah, a Benjamite. So again, he's a part of a tribe of Israel. Benjamin, the Benjamite tribe was most likely smaller, and so maybe that gives us a little insight to he was lesser known um, or just lesser involved with what was taking place. And then there's a really weird detail about, about Ehud in this passage. Did any of you guys catch it? He's a left-handed man, all right? Very odd. Why, would you, why, why is that thrown into the middle of this passage? Which I'm just curious, is anyone in here left-handed? Any left-handed people? You can raise your left hand, right? Just, just so we know you're telling the truth. Um, I'm, I myself am not left-handed. Uh, I have a sister who we grew up, uh, she's about a year and a half younger than me. She is left-handed. And so growing up, um, I remember that she had some struggles as a left-handed person, as any left-handed person would, because the world operates for right-handed people, right? Amen, left-handers, right? Like, yes, like that's just how things are. And so I have, I have a couple photos just to show you. Um, these are struggles I saw her deal with and I've, I know of that people who are left-handed just have a hard time doing these things. And so a couple photos, this first one here, um, they're kind of classroom type things, but just a simple pair of scissors, right? Uh, right-handed scissors, easy. If you're a lefty and you gotta use a pair of right-handed scissors, you're gonna have a really difficult time, right? Getting, getting the outcome you're looking for, okay? So that's one simple thing. Uh, we could talk about computer. This, I actually only picked this picture just because, I didn't put this in there, just is not helpful on the right side, okay? So like, yeah, any old computer you're typing on, if you gotta reach over to hit some of those buttons on the left side, like, that's different. You gotta, you gotta adjust and adapt to that. I like this next picture, though. This is an older classroom setting, and you could see where that might be difficult, being left-handed. I, I don't know what the solution is to that, except just figure it out. I guess it's a left-handed person, right? Or, like, get a chair and sit next to the desk. So that's a struggle, right? Thankfully, they've kind of fixed that with just normal tables now in the school setting. Uh, but this last one, I think, this is what I think of when I think of left-handed problems, um, is the writing, right? Like writing with your left or right hand and, and that pen, that ink, that lead, you just kind of smear it across the page every time you gotta go back. And so this is just to say, being left-handed, there, there's some natural struggles that you would have as a left-handed person. Now also, what's important is, is obviously these are left-handed struggles we understand today, but in Ehud's time, none of this stuff was taking place. So, so why is this significant? Well, to be a left-handed person would have meant culturally, this, this is kind of a bizarre thing to say, but culturally, you would have been 
somewhat of an outcast because you were not able to use your right hand. In fact, uh, in the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew translation of kind of that sentence, that phrase of him being a left-handed man, what it really means and translates to is that he had no ability to use his right hand. So, so we actually don't know. Maybe he injured it in battle at some point and just could not use his right hand anymore. Maybe it was a deformity that he had from birth. Either way, what we see here is it's a, a, a fact that's important to note here because culturally he would have been looked down on, okay? In fact, Scripture explains that there's a lot more benefits, like being right-handed or the right hand had more symbolic meaning behind power and, and good, positive things. Isaiah 62, 8 says, The Lord has sworn by his right hand and his mighty arm, never again will I give your grain as food for your enemies. So it has to do with promises and be keeping, keeping your word. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your, not left, but right hand. Okay, so pleasures and goodness, positive things come out of this idea of right-handedness. And then Psalm 110.1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So there's a symbolic meaning of positivity behind this, but there's also just a cultural um, lifestyle that would say, if you can't use your right hand, then we're going to disqualify you for certain things. Really interesting. An Ehud disability would have been a huge disadvantage for him to be a judge, to come and lead God's people. And so we see here, left, if you're left-handed, just want you to know, the Bible has a passage and a story just for you, right? Like, this is your story here, right? Like, pull this out and tell people next time when you're like, hey, I got a story just about this. But his, his left-handedness would have proved to him to be a disability in so many different ways. And really quick, before we go into the story, before we kind of continue uh, in, into more of, of, of what's gonna unfold here, I just wanna prepare you. Um, as Ehud takes on this challenge to be God's judge, the way God brings victory through him is much, much different than Othniel. So I'm not making this up. Um, this is what the Bible says. I have to read it because it's the passage I was given this morning. So uh, the title of the series is Don't Judge Me. So please don't judge me as, as we kind of read and see what happens from here on out. So verse 16, uh, Judges 3, it says, Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword, about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. And he presented tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab, who was a very fat man. All right, what type of story are we reading in scripture right now? Uh, so a couple things to note here. Yes, yeah, so, so Ehud goes and he, he makes this little double-edged sword, which would have been kind of a small little dagger-shaped blade, and he's going to conceal it, right? So you can kind of read between the lines what he's doing here. He's going to hopefully sneak into the king's chamber and take his life. He, he's hoping to murder him and, and get him out so Israel can be victorious yet again. But he does something, again, really unique. He puts the sword on what side? His right thigh, Okay, so back then, most of us probably don't carry swords around with us anymore, but back then if you did, if you were right-handed, it would naturally go to your left hip, right? So as you swung it out, you're ready to fight or do whatever, it was always at your left hip because it was quick and easy. So Ehud coming into the king's chamber, he conceals this, this dagger under his right thigh. No one in their right mind is gonna think to look there because 
culturally, they wouldn't expect it. So he's using now his disadvantage as an advantage. And then just to make things even more weird, we see that Eglon the king is apparently a really large man, okay? So he's, he's a big man. That means as a king, he's probably very well off. He's very wealthy. He's eating just fine. And he's this unhealthy king who is kind of symbolizing sin and who's the oppressing Israel at this point. So the story continues uh, in chapter, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 20. So it says, finally... Uh, Verse 20, Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. And as the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. So depending on what version of the Bible you have here, this gets a little graphic, uh, but this is what happens, okay? As Ehud stabs the king in his stomach... This is what the Bible says. I'm not joking. His, his fat rolls around the blade and it gets stuck. So Ehud has to pull his hand out and he kills the king, sneaks out the back window, hops out the back door. And while this is all happening, the king essentially relieves himself. So goes to the bathroom, number two, right there in the middle of the king's chamber, okay? <laughs> Nobody comes to even check out the king. Can you guess Why? because they think he's using the bathroom, all right? This is in the Bible. This is crazy, I know. And we're going we're gonna to pull a point out of here in some way, shape, or form, all right? No, but, but here, here's really what's happening. Here's what's really interesting about this whole scenario, okay? We, we'll actually talk about this in just a sec. But Ehud is using all of his disadvantage, all of, all of the things that culturally people would have said, you are not capable to get as close as he can to the king where nobody else would have been able to do that. No, no one would ever allow a single person, especially an Israelite, to be alone with the king unless they thought that they weren't capable of harming him. And so Ehud says, okay, I am going to choose then to use my disability, my disadvantage, and I'm going to use it as an advantage to take out this king. What's incredible here in this story is that Ehud's willing to step up and do something unheard of that nobody else probably felt they were capable of while he himself was looked at as being incapable. So let's finish the story here. Verse 26, Judges chapter 3. It says, while they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sarah. Where he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab, and they allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong, and not one escaped that day. And that day Moab was made subject to Israel and the land had peace for 80 years. So interesting how different these stories are, but have you noticed that they started the same and ended the same? Doesn't matter how weird or bizarre the story is, God still used somebody. He still made them victorious. He still brought victory to God's people. And so I want to look at these two heroes, see how they're different, and see how they're the same. And we're going to pull some truth out of both of their stories. 
So Othniel, he's, he's our first judge. He's, he's leading, he's setting the tone for Israel. We see that he's a man who has no disabilities and no flaws. We don't read anything about that. And that's not to say he was perfect per se, but we see as a leader, he was someone who everyone would have looked up to. And clearly they did. He grabs Israel, he takes them, he immediately rallies them to go destroy the king of Mesopotamia. And he's victorious. He has the support of God's people without needing to prove it. He's, he's the leader we all would love to be, right? Just to say, hey, guys, I got this idea. Why don't you come, come be with me? You're at my side. Let's go, let's go make this happen. He's the leader we would love to be. He's perfect, has no problems. Even his name compared to Othniel and Ehud, I mean, Othniel has this kind of elegant, like kingly, majestic name, and Ehud is just Ehud, right? Like, like poor guy, like that's the name he lives with his whole life. And so when we compare him to Othniel, Ehud's almost the opposite, right? He's an outcast. No one's looking to him to be their leader. No one thinks he's capable. He would have been considered unworthy. In fact, he had to defeat the king in order to then get Israel to come fight the battle with him. So it's clear to us that people didn't trust him until he had to take things into his own hand. And he used his weakness as his strength. What's really cool about both of these people is both were called by God and both were used by God. So God has the ability to use really anyone. And, and I, I really do believe, I really think that there's a reason why these judges are put in the order that they are, not even just written down, but there's a reason God picked these people in this order and it's to show us that we all want to be perfect, yet we're most likely more like Ehud in this story. But there's a lot to pull out of chapter three. There's a, lot of, there's a lot for us to learn based off of these two judges. And so what I wanna do is, as we kind of get close to, to, to ending and, and finishing this, this point, is find the theme that's, that's throughout this whole chapter. I wanna do that in three different ways. One is by looking at the perspective of Israel. Because really, Israel is the main character throughout all of Judges, right? They're the people who are going through this cycle over and over. And as much as we'd like to say, we want to be like Othniel or, or Ehud or a judge that was victorious, we are probably like Israel more than we realize. But Israel shows us two things from the story. They show us that God, he hears our cries for help. That's really important. Because there's, it's obvious to me, it shouldn't be a secret truth, a hidden truth in this room that we all have, have things going on in our life or have been through seasons and scenarios where life has been difficult and we've, we've questioned, God, are you hearing what I'm saying? And I would argue to say, if, if God can hear the cries of his people, we're only three chapters in and we're you know 80 plus years in at this point, if, if he's willing to hear the cries of his people that do the same thing over and over again, then he obviously hears us. Now, how he responds might be different how he responds and the people he puts in our life to help answer those cries might not go the way we expect them to. I can certainly tell you Ehud probably wasn't planning on this, but he hears our cries. The other thing we learn from Israel, from God's people, is that God requires our worship. So if, if we're at a point or a position in our life where our relationship with God is struggling and we feel like there's a disconnect, that's, that's really the first place we should go. 
Because the reason this whole cycle is repeating itself over and over and over is because God's people are forgetting he requires. He doesn't just need, he doesn't just want, but he requires it. And so we have to be careful to not fall into this cycle. And, and thankfully, when we do, we have these stories, and, and in just a moment, we'll connect the dots here, but we have an even greater judge who shows us he's there to, to lead us out of those, those moments. God hears our cries for help. He requires our worship. That's what we learn from Israel. What do we learn from Othniel, this perfect man, this, this leader without flaw? What do we see from him? I see two things. One is that God, he appoints leaders. Um, we, we can take this a couple different ways, but it's really, it's important for us to recognize that throughout the story of Judges, these aren't people that just show up. These are leaders that God says, I'm gonna use you. And you might, you might be skilled in this area, you might be skilled in this area, but also you might be flawed here and you might be flawed in this way too. And it's really easy for us to want to be the leader ourselves, or to compare ourselves with other people or other success, successes in our lives. But ultimately, and God, God appoints those people and he can use anyone. Following that thought, we also see from Othniel that God is, he's in full control. And I don't know about you all, but for me, that's a tough truth. That's a tough truth to come to, come to terms with. Like God's in control all the time. Meaning, God's in control those eight years while Israel is under oppression and they're lost and they don't know what's happening. God's in control when everything in our life seems like it's not going the way we want it to. And we unlike these leaders that we read about, usually want to step in and be the leader ourselves, or take things into our own hands and, and make things happen for ourselves. But God says, I just need you to, to cry out to me. I just need you to fix your eyes on me and I will take care of the rest. And usually we're involved with that. But if we're not willing to say, God, you're in control, then our only natural response is for us to try and take control. And... Again, Israel is a great example of what happens if that takes place. But Ehud is kind of our unique judge this morning, right? He's kind of the man who's, who's set apart, who's a little different. His story is quite unique. And so he, he to me, is kind of our, our centerpiece for chapter three, ultimately. And he teaches us two things, two things for all these, for all these different areas. But here's what I see from him. One, we see that Ehud tells us God requires us to act, especially on our faith. I think about this story, being in Ehud's position, thinking and knowing, not even thinking, knowing that the people around me don't have my back, they don't support me, and it's really unlikely that I can make this happen. What we believe when we put our, our, our belief in Jesus is that we act on faith and that God comes in and fills in the rest. And so Ehud is this amazing example of what happens when we say, all right, God, I'm going to act on this. I have every excuse to say, this is not for me. I'm not fit for the job. Uh, this, isn't my, this isn't my gifting, so let's put somebody else in. God says, no, I would actually rather you be the person, whether you think you can or not. And that requires action. To circle back to our, our crazy story and our bizarre ending with, with Ehud and the king, here's what I love about this story. As silly and as weird as it is, it tells me that God, he puts our enemies to shame, right? 
Like, 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 I cannot think of a more shameful way to go down than that. And what, what a cool picture, though, for God to say, hey, you know what? I don't care how much you think this enemy in your life has power over you. I'm not just going to make them disappear. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put them to shame. I'm gonna let them know, I'm gonna make sure they realize that I am in control, that I am the one true God. And anyone else who thinks they can take that position, I will put them to shame. There's so much out of just one little chapter that we can pull out and recognize. But the one, the one truth, the, the one thread that goes through this whole passage to me is we find it in Ehud's story. And it's this, it's, it's likely that God will use the unlikely. We're gonna see this from time and time again through the book of Judges. But God uses our flaws for his perfect will. Paul says it beautifully in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. Isn't that what we see in Ehud's life? I'm not gonna shy back from this opportunity. I'm not gonna step back and, and, and avoid a, a, a time for me to be used by God. And, and I know all of us in this room, we all know it. None of us are perfect. We all have flaws. We all in some way, shape, or form are the unlikely hero in a setting, in a scenario that you're living out right now. And here's the thing. God says, I still wanna use you. Doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. Doesn't matter what sin you're going through. God says, I would love to use you. And I would say if something feels impossible to us, then it just means God has an even bigger opportunity to be glorified, right? If if we're willing to say, God, it's so obvious that I can't do this, then if I do it, then it means you become even more obvious yourself. And that's what the story of Ehud teaches us. What's really special about this, these two judges, is is they, they paint a a bigger picture of a judge who's going to come, right? This man we know is Jesus. And Jesus was a perfect, flawless judge like Othniel, right? He, he came and he lived this life with no sin. And he died on the cross. But at the same time, he was an outcast. He was not considered worthy to be the savior. People rejected him. And so we take these two people and we realize, man, ultimately God has shown up in our life. He has reigned victorious and it's not a one-time victory, it's an eternal victory. And because of that, we can be likely used by God. So we're gonna take communion in just a second. I'm gonna have the band go ahead and come on out here and and as we do, as we prepare, you guys should have the elements um, somewhere nearby. You can, you can take those out and have them ready. We'll, we'll take communion all together at the end of our song here. But, but as we get ready to, to sing one final song and reflect, here, here's, here's my one question for you. Knowing the outcome of Ehud's story and that he was an unlikely hero, as we sing this last song, ask yourself this question, what What opportunities are you missing because you don't think that you're capable? So as we stand and sing, uh, let's, let's process that before we take communion this morning.